tonight in God's Word, we're going to begin looking at the final section of Romans chapter 8. In a moment, I'll read for us just two verses, verses 31 and 32. Romans 8, 31 through 39 teaches us that God the Father loves, provides for, and protects His children through His Son, Jesus Christ. And the method that Paul uses to begin bringing this home to us is he has a series of rhetorical questions, and we'll look at three rhetorical questions this evening. And they're intended to strengthen the believer's assurance. The questions are arranged in such a way that we are to come to the conclusion that God is for us, and therefore our assurance and confidence in Him is strengthened. Before I read God's word for us this evening, let us go to him in prayer again. Please join me in prayer. Our great God, we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to give us illumination and understanding into your word, that we might rightly understand and apply it to our lives, so that we might serve our fellow Christians and be faithful witnesses in our community. So we ask that by the preaching of your word tonight and your spirit's help, we would grow in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and that we would increase in our hope and trust in the gospel. We ask all this in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Amen. And so far, God's word to us. John Calvin, quoting on this section of Romans 8, said this, and I quote, we often judge the love or hatred of God by our present state. When things fall apart outwardly, sorrow takes possession of our minds and drives away all confidence and consolation. And then he said, we need to look past our present warfare, end quote. We know better than to judge God's love for us by our current circumstances. But so often we are tempted to do so, aren't we? May it be the loss of a dear friend, a loved one, a family member. It might have been being laid off or losing a job altogether that causes the question, God's loving care for us. It may be when everything in our house decides to break at the same exact time that we wonder, God, where are you? What are you doing? What is your plan? It's in those moments that our confidence in God does quite often take a blow. Now, to experience doubt, disappointment, or frustration with God does not mean that you're not a Christian. It means that you're a struggling Christian. It means that your faith has been bombarded. It probably means that there is 
sin in your heart. It probably means that there is some unbelief that the Lord wants to show you. But weak faith is still saving faith. We need to be reminded that it's not the quality of our personal faith that saves us, but it's the object of our faith. Weak, struggling, battered faith in a strong Savior is saving faith. But the Lord doesn't want to leave us in a place of struggling, battered faith where we wrestle with assurance and we don't find much. No, in his word, he has help for us. He has help for those who are struggling with assurance and confidence that they belong to God and that God is for them. In Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, it is the perfect place to go for those who are stumbling along. These verses here are the perfect prescription for when our confidence is weak and our assurance is waving. So as I start the end here of Romans chapter 8, and we only look at two verses, I wanted to see three things from these three rhetorical questions tonight. The first thing is going to be the gospel's undeniable conclusion. The second thing we need to look at is the Father's incomparable gift. And finally, that leaves us with the assurance we need, the assurance that we need. 831, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Paul is telling us that the logic of the gospel leads us to an undeniable conclusion. And what is that conclusion? God is for us. Now, what are the things that he is referencing? Well, it very well could be the previous verses, 28 through 30. It could be the entire chapter of Romans 8. It probably definitely has in view the way that the, Paul has expounded the gospel throughout Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, all the way to Romans 8, verse 30. He has made it clear that mankind's greatest need is right standing with God. And right standing with God is not something that we can accomplish by our own efforts, but it's something that God has done for us. It's God's free gift that we receive by faith. And so in chapter 3, verse 24, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And on to verse 28 of chapter 3. One is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4. There, Paul quotes David from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Here is the gospel that Paul has been laying out. Here are the things he's saying. What can be said to these things? What conclusion should we draw from what I've been writing to you? And then when we come to chapter 5 of Romans, here I think this is especially the these things that Paul is referring to. Because it's in between chapters 5 and 8 that the apostle then applies the gospel of free grace 
of justification by faith alone to the Christian life and to the Christian's destiny. That's what we see, and that's where we are coming to a close in the book of Romans here in Romans chapter 8. And did you ever notice in the beginning of Romans chapter 5, the similarities of the themes and the things that are picked up later and further expounded in what we've been looking at in Romans chapter 8? Let me remind you here of the first five verses of Romans chapter 5. We could go through much more, but just the first five. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Many of the themes of being right with God no longer condemned. Many themes of suffering that leads us to focus our lives on the hope and the glory of God that is to come. The theme of God's great love, it is woven in and out of Romans chapter 5 through chapter 8. That is part of the things that Paul wants us to take a moment and reflect on. And having thought about these things, he says, your conclusion and the right conclusion, the only right conclusion to come to is that God is for you. Charles Hodge summed it up this way. If he has delivered us from the law of sin and death, if he has renewed us by his spirit which dwells within us, if he recognizes us as his children and his heirs and has predestined us to holiness and glory, who can be against us? Who can be against us is the question. It's not who is against us. That's a very long list because we are in a spiritual battle and our foes are many. But the question is, who can really be against us? There are many who would seek to harm the believer. But the right conclusion is that all the harm that they intend for us cannot alter the destiny of God's adopted children. The early church father, Chrysostom, said it in this way, and I quote, Yet those that be against us, so far are they from thwarting us at all, that against their will they become to us the causes of crowns and procurers of countless blessings, in that God's wisdom turneth their plots unto our salvation and glory. And then he says this, See how really no one is against us? He's making the point that even those who would intend to harm us are enemy, that God in his wise providence and governing all things for our good and his glory, what they intend for evil, he intends for good. But still, we might raise objections. And what objections could we raise? Well, we might think about our present struggle with sin and temptation. We may still have shame about our past. We, we see decay in our bodies. 
and we haven't experienced the fullness of the resurrection that's been promised to us. And for most of us, death still awaits us unless Christ returns before then. But we've seen over and over again in Romans chapter 8 how Paul has answered these objections. And he says, don't miss the logical conclusion. If God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. Having read and meditated and embraced the gospel and have it explained in Paul's letter to the Romans and how it's then applied to living the Christian life now and our eternal destiny, which is in the hands of our Heavenly Father, we should be like the, the young shepherd boy in the Old Testament, David, who goes out to the battle lines to bring some supplies and food to his brothers. And he hears the giant Goliath there in the valley calling out and taunting and mocking the people of God. And what does David say in 1 Samuel 17, 26? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Having heard and embraced and believed the gospel, we too can, like David, have great confidence in our great God, knowing that none can be against us. And yet, with all the objections answered in God's word, our enemy will still speak lies. And so Paul knows that. And in the end of Romans 8, he will identify the enemy the way he'll try to undermine our assurance that he'll try to erode our confidence. So we'll see in the coming weeks, in verse 33, it is Satan who would bring a charge against God's elect. And any who would bring a charge against God's elect, they're doing Satan's work. In verse 34, it is Satan who would seek to condemn the believer. In verse 35, it is Satan who would point to our sufferings and trials and try to convince us that we are separated from the love of Christ. And Paul, knowing our frailty, knowing our need for help, he anticipates the enemy's lies. And here at the end of the chapter, he's going to reiterate three keys to assure us that God is for us, and that fact will not change. So in verse 34, he'll answer the enemy's lies, reminding us of Jesus' intercession that he is praying for us, and God the Father always hears Jesus' prayers. In verse 33, we'll see that we are reminded of that our justification is an irreversible legal declaration. And therefore, there is no charge that can be brought against God's elect. And in verse 32, in our passage this evening, what is it that the Apostle Paul points us to? It's the cross. It is the cross. He's saying, dear believer, if you're struggling with the question, is God for me? Fix your eyes on the cross. And so that's the second thing, the Father's incomparable gift. The logic of the cross is that the Father's incomparable gift of the Son is the assurance that we need to know that God is for us and that will not change. God through the Apostle Paul, has told us clearly of our destiny as believers in Romans chapter 8. 
In verse 17, we are heirs with God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And then in verse 22, we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And then as we heard last week, verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. But even in these verses, some of you may say that's good, but I recognize that it implies my perseverance. It implies my faithful endurance. It implies that I must hold on to hope. And so then the Apostle Paul makes it very clear in verse 30. Again, as we saw last week, he spells out the believer's destiny as an unbreakable chain. In verse 30 of chapter 8, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is the entirety of the believer's life the beginning of our warfare, being called into God's kingdom to making it home to glory and being glorified with Christ. But in that golden chain, in that unbreakable chain, what what happens between justification and glorification? Well, a lot happens. Our, Our sanctification and our growth in holiness and our killing of sin. It's our perseverance That must happen between justification and glorification. But I think Paul's point is that the necessity of our perseverance is not meant to undermine our assurance. He wants us to understand that God will not lose those he has justified. That when he said, you were justified, he said, I am now for you. The guilty plea has been removed. And now Christ's innocence covers you. That you are no longer part of the kingdom of darkness and you are now part of my family. But if you are still struggling to believe God is for you, it's almost as if the Apostle Paul with this question inserts the cross right into the golden chain of 830. He says, okay, predestined, cross, called, justified, glorified. That can't be broken. That gives you certainty that God is for you. But what should be somewhat surprising to us in verse 32 is the way the cross is spoken of. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In that verse, we see two members of the Trinity, the Father and the Son. And it's the Father who did not spare the Son. Here, it's looking at the sacrifice of the cross, but it's saying this was the sacrifice of the Son. But here, it's emphasizing the sacrifice of the Father. And throughout church history and biblical scholars still today see that the language of 832 alludes to when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. In our passage, it's his own son. It it is meant to remind us of 
Genesis 22, 2, where God told Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. That is the image that we're supposed to to be drawn to. But it's not by way of comparison. It's by way of contrast. Because Abraham, as he brought Isaac on top of the mountain and he bound him, ready to sacrifice him, God stopped him by angel and provided a ram in the bush. It's It's a contrast between what Abraham was told and what God has done for his elect. R.C. Sproul put it this way. God commanded Abraham to spare his son. But here the Apostle Paul tells us that he did not spare his son. If you're a Christian, you are adopted into God's family. You are a son and daughter of your heavenly Father. You share in Jesus' inheritance and you will share in his glory and being glorified and made like him. But that is in no way to diminish the preciousness of Jesus to the heavenly Father. We weren't with the Father from all eternity. Jesus was. As one has described it, Jesus was the only begotten and the fathomlessly beloved Son the fathomlessly beloved Son. God, the creator of all things, the judge of all people, he has a Son who is precious to him. And that Son takes on flesh to be the Messiah, to be the sacrifice for the elect. And that Son commits not one sin, not one momentary lapse, Not one word, not one action, not one thought in his entire life was ever unpleasing to his father. Everything he did was always and completely and perfectly pleasing to his father. And yet, he did not spare his own son. The son received the sentence that belonged to sinners He did not spare the severity of the sentence. Not more than what was required, but everything that was required for the salvation of God's people, the son bore. And the son did this agreeing with his father and with the Holy Spirit. The son is not passive in his sacrifice, but he is laying down his life for his people. And the apostle Paul will point that out to us further in the end of of Romans chapter 8, but here he's emphasizing the sacrifice of the Father. What does that mean? It means that we can never say that Jesus made his Father love us. No, we can't. The Father was not coerced to being for us at the cross. No, the Father gave the son he loves because he loves us too. 
He loves us and gave his son for us. Again, Charles Hodge is helpful here. And he says, and I quote, the believer is assured of salvation, not because he's assured of his own constancy, but he is assured of the immutability of the divine love. Infinite love cannot change. A love which spared not the eternal Son of God, but freely gave him up, cannot fail. What wonderful assurance there is for the believer, knowing God the Father's love for them, a love that did not spare his own Son. And to appreciate the sacrifice of the Father, we have to remember that there was a time that God was against us. And we do have to remember the eternal damnation that our rebellion against our Creator deserved. If you are not a Christian and you're listening to this, this live stream this evening, God is against you. God is not for you. And He won't be until you bow the knee to his son, Jesus. But know this, the incomparable gift of the son, the sacrifice of the father, gives every sinner warrant to seek forgiveness. Seeing the sacrifice of the father giving his son for sinners gives every sinner logical reason to ask God for pardon and forgiveness. And if you have not surrendered your life to Christ, God is against you. But if you trust in his son as your savior and turn from your sins, he will be for you and that will never change. It will never change. If he sacrificed his son for your sins, then you can be confident that he will provide for your needs. Well, that's the conclusion that then this question in verse 32 leaves us at. Here is the assurance that we need. And the final thing I wanted to consider there in Romans 8, 32, the, the end of our question there. It says, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The cross of Jesus gives us assurance for eternity and for today. The logic is if God gave his son for our sins, he will glorify us with his son in the future but it's not just the assurance of eternal life. Here, the apostle wants us to see that it gives us assurance for this life now. He's making the argument from the greater to the lesser. Your greater need being salvation, your greater need being someone to die in your place for your sins. If the father did not spare the son for that, well, then he will bring you home to glory. And he will provide for your needs today. That is where he says, graciously gives us all things. With him, he will give us all things. All things 
should remind us of what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. If he sacrificed his son for your sins, you can be confident that he'll provide for your needs because God the Father loves, protects, and provides for his children through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may have very vivid memories of the morning of April 4th, 2000. In fact, I believe that Many of you have very vivid memories of the morning of April 4th, 2000 because of what happened on April 3rd, the night before. And what happened that night was Michigan State's men's basketball team won their second national championship. And as fans and teams and a university, on the morning of April 4th, everyone could have looked around and said, Who can be against us? Who can be against us? But as many of you would testify, that didn't last forever. And there's been many ups and downs since. A lot of of good teams, but nothing like the morning of April 4th since. It didn't last forever. It was only one season. They had to play again the next year and try to compete for another championship. And Paul says, that's not the same for the believer. It's not one day who can be against us and God is for us. It's every day until days without end. That no one can truly ever be against the believer because the Father has given the Son. And if he was willing to give the Son, He will give everything we need now and for all eternity. And that is a fact that will never change. God is for us. Who can be against us? Let us pray and ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Oh Lord, we do not deserve such grace and mercy that we have been shown. Help us to believe it. Help us to take our eyes off our struggling, our our sputtering along, and look to your great gospel design and what you have accomplished for your people and how that can never change and how that changes our entire outlook today, tomorrow, and for all eternity. And so we do ask that you would show us where our hopes have been placed in things that will fail us. Show us sinful doubt and unbelief that we may repent and that we may grow in our confidence and our assurance of the gospel. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.